Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Uh, folks, we this is just surreal, the episode that we have uh, prepared for all of you today. Um, if those of you who listened to season one and maybe the episode, what, what episode number was it, Maurice? The Black Brown Divide. I want to say it was episode maybe two or three. Something um, like that, yeah. Yeah, so this is a continuation of that episode. And if you recall, in that episode, I referenced a book that kind of highlighted this Black and Brown Divide for me way back when I was a high school student in Waukegan, Illinois. And the title of that book is called The Presumed Alliance, and it was written by Nicolas Vaca. And our guest today, again, it feels so surreal, is the man himself, Nicolas C. Vaca. <laughs> I, I can't even believe it. I, again, I'm a little, I'm a little shook. So uh, again, as Lisette said, we we are ecstatic uh, to have you here on Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Um, uh, you know. We um, are, are both educators by, by nature, um, but I think even more than that, we are inquisitive folk. Um, and so in, in our initial conversation, Lissette had mentioned this book. And um, so since then, I've, I've, I've purchased it on Kindle um, and, uh, you know, I'm making my way through it. And um, one of the things that, that comes up uh, is you kind of talk about uh, during the 1960s, this idea that relationships, uh, the, the relationship between um, blacks and Latinos was kind of viewed through these rose colored glasses. Um, and right. you talked about having seen Malcolm X speak. So so help me to figure out how does this this Mexican-American young kid end up in a space where you're watching Malcolm X speak. What, what was that like? And can you talk just a little bit about that experience of, of the civil rights for you? Yeah, um, let's see. I grew up in uh, the Central Valley of California, a small town by the name of Stockton. And um, I ended up going to, um, to junior college for one year. And then uh, you'll find this somewhat ironic. I had a close friend, a Chinese American friend. And by the way, because I'm in California, we had a lot. I had a lot of Asian friends. The high school I went to had a large Asian population, Chinese, Japanese American. And a lot of the Japanese American students who were there were born in relocation camps. Uh, so one of my closest friends was a fellow by the name of Norman Hong. And uh, one day he says, hey, look, I'm going to see my sister at Berkeley. You want to come along? I said, sure. Never been anywhere outside of Stockton much. So I went up there, uh, and his sister was um, uh, was attending uh, for I think for the it was her third year there, and her name was Maxine Hong Kingston. 
I don't know if you know, remember the, the book called Woman Warrior? She was the first of the Asian-American women to write a, a novel. Uh, she was incredibly impressive when I met her. And I decided that I wanted to go to Berkeley. Uh, little did I know that you should apply to more than one university, but I applied to Berkeley only, got into Berkeley, uh, and uh, ended up going there. Uh, I was there that, you know, free speech movement began, uh, the civil rights wounds began, um, the uh, war at war against uh, the marching against uh, Vietnam happened there. It was an incredibly exciting time, just really, really exciting. And yeah, I did. I, I, I remember like it happened yesterday watching Malcolm X speak and uh, found it really just an absolutely amazing thing. He was electrifying when he spoke, absolutely electrifying. Um, so I mean, I, that's what I, I ended up there, ended up going to grad school uh, there, and then uh, uh, ended up going to law school eventually. But wow. that's kind of the abbreviated version of how I, got to, uh, how I got to Berkeley and how I saw all those wonderful things. Now, can you speak to what the audience was like? Was it a diverse group? Was it predominantly a black group? You know, was it what was it like? And, you know, as a Mexican man, did you feel out of place or did you feel pretty comfortable in that space? Um, you mean when Malcolm X spoke? Yeah. that Yeah. Being there and hearing. Yeah. Well, Malcolm X spoke was largely white because at that time, Berkeley, like most universities, was largely white. And so. Uh, uh, I, I found one of the most incredible statements he made was, we've got to kill or get rid of the blue-eyed devils. And I was amazed because I was watching white people just clapping, going crazy, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah get rid yeah. of the blue-eyed yeah. devils. <laughs> yeah. You know, not, never realizing that he was really talking about them uh, or they were an exception to the blue-eyed devil. Yeah. Uh, but I, you have to understand also, when I was at Berkeley, I was one of 50 Latino students and probably one of 40 Mexican-American students at Berkeley out of a population of 20. So we were just minute. We were just, we just, you know, I, there was nothing there for us, other, for me when I got there. Uh, in terms of being a, a Latino identification. There was nothing there. I was just, it was largely a white university. Uh, we had very few African-American students as well. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was it, how can I say? It was just a, a continuation, I believe, of my experience uh, uh, in, in when I first got there and also in kind of higher education where yeah. it's largely white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and you find yourself in situations where you're the only, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Latino, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, it's, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this idea, and I know we've kind of laughed at it, of them clapping to, to him saying, we've got to get rid of these blue-eyed devils, but I think it almost speaks to this idea that they were just engaged by him as a yeah. speaker, Right. Because yes, he yes. was articulate. And, you know, it's almost a, that idea of exceptionalism uh, that they weren't really even that interested necessarily in what he was saying as Correct. much as the fact that he was there. This this celebrity black celebrity figure was there speaking to them. Well, um, yeah. it's almost too like, you know, you might liken it to today with, where you have white protesters marching with Black Lives Matter. You know, you're always going to have that those allies. And so that, actually, that's the first thing that I thought of was when you s said, you know, like they were clapping and, and things like that. So I think through history, we have seen 
there have been, you know, white folks who who have been allies for civil rights movements. Yeah. And, you know, uh, this was also I was there during the 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 time when students went to the South for voter registration. Uh, one of my close friends, uh, Hardy Fry, who is somewhat notable in the, in the African-American history in terms of civil rights women in the South, uh, was was one of the activists down in the in the south doing a voter registration so you ha- you always had this element of white students uh, who supported the whether it was civil rights movement whether uh, later on the women's movement uh, so you always had this element of of white people who actually supported uh the liberal causes again, whether it was Cesar Chavez whether it was the black panthers uh which was another you know, interesting element when I was there as well, because it was, it was in Oakland, it was originally in Oakland. And I used to work in Oakland under um, a work study program. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was an exciting time. Uh, it was a, it was a very um, exhilarating time. Uh, but through it all, as, as I pointed out in the book, I realized that even though Latinos and African-Americans were supposed to have this, this sort of unity, this, this closeness, this, shared um, oppression that at some t- at times it became um, a contest between the two mm-hmm. there was there was vying for resources uh, whether it was uh, Chicano studies in those days it was called Chicano studies or uh, black studies or, uh, there was always because it was limited amount of resources so there was this constant struggling back and forth it was that time also there was a big move to bring in African-American uh, professors in the Department of Sociology where I was. And uh, Harry Edwards ended up uh, going to to Berkeley, who became, later on became uh, the icon on uh, sociology of sports. Uh, and we had Troy Duster, who also became somewhat of an icon. Uh, we never got we never got a Mexican-American professor there. I think they have one. They had one there and I think she's gone there. But the whole time that I was at Berkeley uh, as a graduate student and undergraduate student, we never had a Mexican-American professor in department sociology. Mm. How, how uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's sad. It's unfortunate because you still, there are still spaces where we're like, there, there's no Mexican-American uh, representation. And that's actually an area that I'm extremely passionate about um, because you know, there's a ton of nuances, but I want to get back and make this about you. Um, funny story. I still have the book from the library. <laughs> I never returned it. And they must have sent me to collection, y'all. <laughs> um, I still have the very book that I, um, I, I loved it. And I, st- I, I just was completely like, because I had seen some of that um, friction and that conflict in my own community but no one right. talking about it. And so I think you right. really gave it the like a voice for me. So, you know, can you take us to where did this presumed alliance, where did the idea of the book come from? And oh, okay. in your opinion, who was making that presumption back then of this presumed right. alliance? Um, the way it came about was kind of unusual. Um, when I was uh, practicing law, I began an immigration practice in Central Valley, Stockton, where I came from. And um, I had all these wonderful clients and they had these really interesting stories to tell. So I wrote, I used to write fiction as well. Uh, In fact, my PhD dissertation at Berkeley was a novel. Uh, And uh, 
I was writing these short stories and one day I decided to send them to the California lawyer, which is a magazine that all attorneys subscribe to in, in uh, California. Actually it's given to us free. Um, and just by chance, I sent a short story and the editor was a real sympathetic individual towards the Latino Mexican American movement as it were. And he called me and says, Hey, look, we'd like to publish it. So make a long story short, I ended up publishing like 10 of these stories in the magazine. Mm. I then decided I wanted to write a, um, a uh, do a book of short stories, put a collection. At that time, uh, the author of the Presumed Alliance, excuse me, the publisher of the Presumed Alliance, HarperCollins, had a Latino press. Uh, and I put together the short stories, sent them off to them, and they didn't think they were the best thing in the world. But they said, well, you got a really interesting background. Do uh, you think you'd write a book on Latinos or Mexican-Americans? I said, I guess. And so I put together a book proposal, which I had never done before, and sent it off. And they say, we love all the chapters, but you have this one particular chapter on African-American Latino or Black Latino conflict. Can you expand on it? And that's how it came about. I, it, it was uh, just one chapter in a book, and there was a fellow by the name of Rene Alegria, who was the editor for the uh, the Harper Collins Press for the Latino version. And he's the one that says, yeah, let's do that, Nick. So that's how it came about. And, you know, I told him that it would, I said, look, it, it may really not <clears throat> fall on empathetic ears in certain communities i said but if you if you guys are willing to do it i'm willing to do it as well so that's how it came about interesting yeah, yeah. that idea that it won't fall on on empathetic or sympathetic ears is is intriguing um mr vaca because um i i think you're i think you're on to something here um there i saw an interview that you had it was a few years back. Actually, go ahead and get back to the question, Maurice. I was going to say, because there's this man that did the Latino American series. I think it's for PBS. And he's uh -huh. in an interview with you. What is his name? I'm trying to remember. Oh, it was years ago. Yeah, really? Know. There was an interview with me? You were like part of a panel. And this. Oh, oh, yes. Yes. You know who I'm talking uh, about? Uh, his, na his name was Montejano. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. I yes. Love he, was, that he was a professor. Watched it twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Montejano was a, a, actually came to Berkeley uh, as a graduate as a graduate student, and then he was a professor for a short period of time there. Then went off, I believe, to New Mexico. Uh, ended up publishing a really significant book, and came back to Berkeley. Uh, I think he was in the Chicano Studies program. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, but that was. That, now, that was really interesting. That was really interesting because my good friend, Hardy Fry, that I mentioned before, mm -hmm. uh, was on the panel itself. And he and I had always been, had always con had did our differences of opinion. I love the guy dearly, uh, but he was, we always had our differences of opinion. And there was a very interesting panel because I remember coming out of there because this was at, this was at Berkeley at the university. And I remember just coming out saying, God, I really took a, a beating there. There was nobody in that organization, in that group that was sympathetic to what I was saying, not one. It was sort of like 
Well, this is this is just an example of you uh, dividing and conquering. You're helping the white people divide and conquer us. And I kept saying it's not it's not a matter of, of dividing and conquering. It's a matter of looking at reality the way it is. And by that time, I had left academics and knew that in academics, if you were to raise this as an issue, you could become a pariah in your academic community. As a lawyer, I didn't give a rats. You know, it was just, you know, you, that's, that's what lawyers do. Lawyers, you know, try and bring out the truth. Uh, so I do remember coming out of there saying that was the worst, that was the worst encounter I ever had. Uh, had Latinos from Puerto Ricans. I had Cuban Americans. I had recent immigrants from Mexico. All of them just really uh, upset with the content of the book. And if you remember correctly in the introduction, there is a fellow uh, Chicano who stopped talking to me because of the book he just he just he just didn't think it was necessary for that book to come out he says you're you're airing dirty laundry in public yes. Um, and yes yep but can i tell you something maurice i i had uh they did a uh, a publicity tour for me uh harper collins did and i got to be on radio programs throughout the united states a lot of them black American programs, you know, black programs from uh, uh, in, a, in, in, a, in the, um, I remember one in Washington, D.C., uh, Chicago and the like. And the people that were more, most sympathetic were the African-Americans. They're the ones that kept saying, yep, this is the elephant in the room. We got to talk about it, you know. And I remember some of them were really blunt. They were very, they said, you know, one, got, one person called in when I was in the radio program in Washington, D.C., and he says, you know, there used to be a place up here that used to be largely black. He says, now it looks like all of El Salvador moved in there. And it was, and I remember going back to D.C. because I had spent the summer of 1966 in D.C. when it was called the Chocolate City. And so when I went back, I had not been back in many, many years. <clears throat> I expected, you know, to see Chocolate City again. I go to this California pizza place. Uh, that's the name of the, pl- of the restaurant. And by uh, first person in Greece, somebody with a with a little badge on it says Honduras. Uh, then the waiter came in. It had its name was Mexico, and it was largely Latino. So you had you saw I saw the, the you know the the dramatic change the Latino population had on the African American community in in Washington. Uh, and I went back there recently to speak at the Smithsonian, uh, uh, Smithsonian, and I saw the same thing again, uh, changing neighborhoods. Uh, so it was, it, but I was always impressed with the fact that the African-Americans were the ones that really would talk about this and accepted the reality that there was a conflict between Latinos and African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And the argument they always made to me was they said, well, you guys aren't a race. Because this is when the Latinos became the largest minority, quote unquote. And they said, you guys aren't a race. You guys are a bunch of ethnic groups mingled together. So you really can't say you're the largest minority because you really just aren't. You're not a race. You're an ethnic group. And you're made up of all these various groups, which I thought was absolutely true. Absolutely true. But the other argument I made with him, I said, look, we may be the largest minority, but we're never going to replace African-Americans in the American psyche. It's just not going to happen. So anybody thinks that just because we're the largest group, somehow we're going to place that replace African-Americans in the American psyche is, is, you know, out, out of touch. 
again, that that maybe so so Lisette and I were talking before we before you came in at the interview, and and I, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what I was trying to say, Lisette. Lisette asked me because I said, you know, um, I was really interested in the idea that like the black community is not going to grow at a rate to be able to keep up with the growing Latino community. It's just not going to happen. And she said, Maurice, how do you feel about that? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. how, I'm <laughs> But I, I think, I think that you just said it well. I think that black people for good or for bad hold a specific place in American history and now current reality. Um, and, and so I think that, that that's really what I was going to try to get at anyway. So this it much more out. eloquently, Maurice's response was because <laughs> black people were dope. <laughs> that was that was Maurice's full answer. That, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're, we're dope. And, and she said, what do you mean? I asked about population change and you said black people are dope. And I, I what I was trying to get at was black people hold this place. Right. They hold this place. And um and so it's, yeah. it's a sui, it's a sui generous place as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's nothing you can do to uh, to eradicate that. I, I let, let me um, let's say since I, I didn't know what you really look like. I saw the the drawing, but to be you know, it, it, I didn't really know what you were going to look like. Uh-oh, here we but, go. Uh-huh. No, 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 no. But I but what and I mean you okay. Um, one of the things that, that is unique about the African-American community versus the Latino community is this. If you're African-American, whether you have a drop or two or whatever, and you're traveling through the United States, you're going to have a certain reaction from white people to you or other people to you. Okay. If you meet an African-American who's from New York and the African-American from Los Angeles, they get together, they meet together. They have a shared experience. They both have suffered profiling. Uh, they've all been stopped by the police. Uh, you meet a Latino from Miami with one from Los Angeles. That may not happen. That may not happen, mm-hmm. particularly if you're a white Cuban. You may never have that happen. So the kind of unity that by as a result of shared experience for African-Americans is unique. Mm-hmm. And that is why I think you can have this this cohesive um, voting block, this cohesive uh, movement, because it's a shared experience. It's a shared experience. You don't have it with Latinos. It just, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, we've we've talked uh, extensively about the fact that um, Latinos are not a monolith. Black folks aren't a monolith either. But just purely, like you said, because some th- some things are like more visible. In my own family, we have very light skin, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, individuals. And if you walk down the streets of South Carolina, they won't know. Maybe they won't know what to make of you. Yeah. But if Maurice walks down the street of South Carolina, they know exactly what Maurice is and how to react to. It. And I think that's all I'm trying to say is that uh, we can't equate our experience with the African American view. And I know that people say, "Oh yes, we got to talk about." police brutality against blacks and then browns. Well, yeah, it's true. Uh, but, you know, I, my assessment is that 
African-Americans are far greater, uh, are more likely to be subjected to police profiling than Latinos, if particularly if you look white. Mm -hmm. And God knows enough of my classmates at at law school were were white Latinos. Mm -hmm. I I rented a place in in Boston where I knew an African-American couldn't rent. But I was, I passed. They allowed me to do that. Yeah, you know, you earlier you talked a little bit about um, the psyche, right? And um, in the in the book, you mentioned that you, you read a lot of black authors, and you made two right. points. You really didn't see Latinos represented in in, in black literature. And right. uh, number two, you realize that Latinos bring a different psyche when they interact with black folks and white folks because of that guilt. Correct. That sometimes white folks feel right. that Latinos don't necessarily have that that experience they don't want right. that guilt and right. those things stood out to me because number one i thought to myself man you're right i, I don't remember or i don't recall reading any um black literature and, and finding any latino representation growing up and again it was right. like i was invisible my culture was invisible like i really didn't know where to fit but number two i had never thought about how you know when white people interact with black folks, there's a lot of guilt and Latinos, because we don't feel like we are to blame for a lot of the perils and the strife that the black community experiences. We don't, we don't carry that with us. Can you elaborate on right. that? Well, no, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right about that. That's, I mean, that's the way, that's what I had seen all along. Um, and I saw it at Berkeley, particularly remember when I said the white devils, uh, and uh, Malcolm X and the White Devils, and all the White Devils uh, clapped uh, because. Uh, but you couldn't say that about Latinos. You just, it just, it, it just, it just didn't work for Latinos. Um, and so, whenever I interacted with my fellow African American classmates, and as a grad student in Berkeley at sociology department, it was very different than when I would saw white liberals interact with them, and it was like. A sense of deference, a sense of guilt. And Marisa, I don't know if you ever had that experience where you run into a white liberal and they bend over almost backwards to prove that, in fact, there's not a drop of prejudice in them. (laughs) (laughs) We just talked about this. Yeah, Lisette and I. So one one of the uh, one of the episodes, in fact, what what is probably going to end up being the opening episode for season two, is talking about exceptionalism. Um, mm-hmm. And just the idea that I think, um, I think, Lisette, you said it well, that, that there are people who like me, but they like themselves more for liking me. And, and, and so it's kind of like, you know, oh, yeah, this is Maurice. Um, he's black. But listen. He is phenomenal, <laughs> you know, like, like, especially, you know, if they hear me and I start hablando español y yo puedo comunicar con la comunidad allí también. Oh, not only that, but listen, he's, oh man, he is truly, and it's just kind of like, um, you know, um, let's, we, we can talk about sports. We don't have to talk about uh, uh, race and politics every time I see you. <laughs> the, way I, the way I described it in the episode is like, if someone were to be called out for, you know, racism or bias, he Maurice would be the, the person they'd point to as like, uh-uh, I love Maurice, so therefore I cannot be racist. <laughs> but I got this more, so again, I feel like, because I have seen it and we work together, 
And I have seen people be in awe of him. And again, you just yeah. get that vibe of like, he is great though. He's my friend. So I think I'm a little biased there too. Cause I, he is a wonderful person, but I have seen how people will literally be just in awe by Maurice. And it's not even so much because of who he is. It's because how they feel for liking him. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of a, uh... Maurice, what you said, I can't possibly have any kind of animus towards African-Americans. I like this guy. Yep. So I can't be a possibly have animus towards him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I, I just find it curious. Let me, let me ask you, uh, uh, Maurice, uh, how do you feel about this thing that's going on with Prince Harry and Meghan? I mean, they keep talking about her being African-American. Do you view her as African-American? <laughs> so... So that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, here's what I will say: as a former history teacher, I understand well the concept of the one drop rule. Right. Okay. And so, in that sense, absolutely, she's African American. I, I uh, you know, folk talked about um, even our our current vice president um, that. Right perhaps did not always identify as African-American, perhaps identified more, you know, with this or with that. But there, th- that I think even speaks to, the, uh, to what you said earlier about black people holding this space, right, in society, right. is there are times where it becomes powerful or beneficial to say, oh yes, I identify with the black community and, and now I get to identify with that, with that oppression. When that oppression becomes a medallion that I get to wear on my shirt, right? Like, look at what I've been through. Then people want to identify with being black, even though maybe that oppression has not been felt in the same way that it has for the person, uh, um, again, whether that's with darker skin or growing up in a different place and or with more poverty or what, what, whatever it may be. So um, I do think, I do think one of the things that it opened up um, and I had the opportunity to study abroad in, in, in Spain. One of the things that had opened up um, this whole thing with, with the royals was that while everybody pretends like America is super racist, we're not the only ones <laughs> who have issues with race, right? Um, and I, dis- I discovered true. that when I was in Spain and Obama was elected and they were like, what? Un negro? Que pasa? And they're like, never, right? And And... And so now all of a sudden we see Great Britain, which always prides itself on, we ended slavery in the 1800s. We decided it was bad. But but did you fix a mentality of white supremacy? And if not, then, you know, we still have to deal with that. So that brings me to a question, though, back to this conversation about Latinos and, and, and Black people and this presumed alliance. You talked a little bit about black latinos can you uh, talk latinos yeah yeah can can you talk some more about that when i was a middle school spanish teacher i always tried black history month i'd bring up afro latinos right that's kind of like this connection to the curriculum and also black history month can you talk a little bit more about some of the things that you shared in the book uh, related to that darkly complex uh, speakers yeah, I what, what's well in New York. That's a big thing. Is in, in Miami, you know, when you start speaking Spanish, somebody say, "Oh, he's Dominican," you know, because you look, you look, you could be Dominican. Um, 
the the thing about the Afro Latinos was I think I think they have a a, a much tougher uh, cross to bear than than either Latinos or African Americans because they're really bridging two cultures, and one may feel. You know, because in, in Los Angeles, you see a lot of intermarriage between Mexican-Americans and African-Americans. And I always thought that's really that's really odd because in the sense that they both have the, the kids must really bear a, a tremendous responsibility for representing their respective cultures. The and when I was when I was on my tour, I would get calls from Afro-Latinos saying, well, what about us? What do we, you know, what what how do we fit into this picture? And, you know, the argument, the statistical argument is that there are not that many Afro-Latinos. On the other hand, there are there are enough to make it an issue uh, and to address it. Um, I, I like with the comment you made earlier that even one drop of you know black blood makes you black. I'm not I would, you know, and again, uh, perceived bias would argue that if somebody shows up and they look African-American, but are really are Afro-Latino, they will be classified as African-American. Um, so they, I think it's a much different, much more difficult road to hold than, than it is for either Latinos or African-Americans. Um, I, uh, there's one thing I want to point out, uh, and that is that I got a lot of comments from people who would say, hey, well, look, my daughter's married to an African-American or my son's married to a Latina. Now, how can you make these arguments that there's this, this divide between this conflict? And the same thing I would also get from politicians who'd say, oh, on the Hill, we all work together. And I would, my response was, yeah, I have no doubt about that, you know? And the book is not really about interpersonal relationships or political alliances. It really is more about individuals in, you know, street people and how they get along and how they how they deal with the world. Um, so I, I, I always had a hard time with that because, you know, if somebody tells me, well, my daughter's married to an African-American. My response was, OK, that's great. I mean, that's 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 your situation. But, you know, it doesn't belie the fact that as a group, there is that there is that conflict. And I don't know if either one of you have experienced it. Uh, I mean, I saw it, like I said, at Berkeley. Uh, firsthand, and then I saw it later on in the affirmative action programs, where there was this contest between Latinos and African Americans. I don't know if you were, you, you may not be old enough to know this, but there was set aside programs uh, by cities and, and states, uh, Latino or African American owned businesses, certain kind of business. And at that time, I had my own law firm, and I was obviously Latino owned. And we were in constant conflict in contests with African-American law firms trying to get business from institutional clients because institutional clients are the ones that pay the big bucks. So it was, you know, it, 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 it's something I, I think to some degree still exists, maybe, maybe not as much. I, you know, I, I sort of fell back into the practice of law and haven't kept up too much with, uh, with what's going on. But, um, I just, I just find it. Um, I, I still think it exists for whatever reasons, and uh, I don't know if you experience unusual situation because you have Puerto Ricans. Yeah, you know you have Puerto Ricans. So you, go ahead. Yeah, you. We do, and that's exactly why we made the episode. Um, and like I said, 
I read your book as a high school student and the reason why I gravitated towards it is because I was experiencing those day-to-day conflicts. I would hear kids in school say things. I would hear family say things. And, and, And like you mentioned earlier, it's like, how dare you air out our dirty laundry? You know, if you hear a tío or a tía say something that's, you know, bringing down, you know, the black person down the street, our black neighbor, and but we can't say that publicly or we can't call them out. It's like, how dare you? And so even at that young age, even though I don't, I didn't have all of the understanding that I have now, to me, writing your book, I I could tell that it was a brave thing that you did because Latinos do not talk about it. Right. Not, yeah. No, that. Not talk about it. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, go ahead. Oh, I, was, I was just going to jump in and say, um, in in our in our previous episode, season one episode, Black Brown Divide, I told a story um, from from my childhood in which my my auntie had some pretty disparaging remarks. Let's just say about Latinos and the rate at which they have children. Okay. And right. and um, five hundred. I remember correctly, right? <laughs> so. so <laughs> So it it definitely was something that that was present in that moment. I can then say from that point forward, I don't know that I really thought about it as much because I was so focused in on on like the the black community and like you know the black white relationship that I didn't think about it a bunch until I became an educator, and oftentimes was the only person in that space who who was different. And so then all of a sudden I connected with my Latino students because I, I spoke Spanish and my black students because I was black. And, and, and I realized like, oh, wait a second, this, this is happening because neither, neither of them have anybody else who looks like them or speaks like them in the whole building. Right. So they're connecting right. here. Um, but then I also noticed that they were connecting in groups apart from one another that even though I was kind of this hub, they were not connecting with one another always. And, and, and I think it's also important to note that Maurice and I grew up in vastly different communities. Uh, You know, Maurice's community was predominantly white. Whereas mine was literally like that salad that we talk about. It was Latino. It was Asian. It was black. It was white. It was middle Eastern. Like we had everything. And I think that that's exactly why we had that conflict because we were essentially competing for the same resources. And as the the demographics continue to change, um, you know, it just became more and more evident that there was a conflict. And do you think though, in your opinion, like, is there a way to, one, I, I guess is, do you think that there's still this idea of a presumed alliance, like this black brown divide because I know that's a very like loaded um, phrase, right? The black brown divide, people still get uncomfortable. Do, so do you think that still exists? And do you think that we can- I, uh, <clears throat> I think the divide exists, but it, I don't think it is as visible as it used to be. Um, I keep I keep listening to the politicians keep talking uh, on police reform about the black and brown. Um, and I just keep thinking that, you know, again, depending on who you are and where you're at and what you look like, it's not the same. It's just, I, I don't, I just don't see, and I could be totally wrong because uh, there are certainly enough Latinos in prison uh, in California and elsewhere 
to attest to the fact that there's a disparity in the judicial system uh, and the criminal procedure that, uh, that forces more and more Latinos into, into prison. Uh, but I, I have not, I don't know that it still exists in, in the same way that it did when I was in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I think maybe things have changed. Uh, you're probably more in tune than I am into, because you, you're, you're, you got feet on the streets and you know, you guys know what's going on. Uh, but I don't, and I don't, I live in a neighborhood which is 99% white. So I don't, I don't see it. And the East Bay where I live is largely, I, mean, I think we have Latinos. My practice ironically now has become mostly Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only Mexican-Americans, but, you know, uh, Salvadorians, Hondurans and the like. But I don't, I don't know that, that it, that exists anymore. Uh, what, what is, I mean, what's your opinion? What, what do you guys found? We think it, we think it does to a certain extent. Okay. Um, I think it's, um, again, it's that elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. Right. Um, and because I think some people think that it takes away from the energy that it takes to fight against white supremacy. And so I think it's right. like, why are we going to talk about this man-made or white man-made idea? Right. We should be uniting and, right. um, and fight white supremacists because they're the real enemy. And so I, I understand that. But again, I think it's that elephant in the room that we don't want to acknowledge because right. it's uncomfortable. Yeah, well, I got a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it sounded like in, in, in the research, it sounded like you got a lot of, um, even just in that introduction, like you said, your friend who was like, nope, if you're going to talk about this, I'm done. Yeah. yeah, I will say, looking at this summer's experiences, um, yes. post-George Floyd, I, I saw a, a connection that I don't think I had seen previous. I, I saw black and brown people marching together. Um, right. Um, and and I, you know, there was a story written about it, and I forgot. Uh, I forget um, what what that source was, but there was a story written about it, and um, and how this summer's protest really did um, maybe begin the process of bridging that divide a little bit more. Right. It it, it continued that process yes. of what has happened over time, um, because I think there is power in that idea that that. Um, that there is that there is a common enemy that the system is that common enemy um, and, and so how how can we um, unite um, so yeah I, I, I definitely think it's still there um, yeah but we're forever I think we're, yeah yeah well let me tell you uh, for uh, about eight months I was CEO of a non-tar- uh a nonprofit uh, organization that ran six charter schools. And it was during the time that I was the CEO that we had the, the George Floyd situation. And I was encouraged and I did, I, I wrote a piece for, to be distributed to all the members of the, uh, of the academic and staff community uh, for the charter schools. And mind you, our charter schools were in Oakland which has a large African-American population. Well, you guys know about Oakland. And Richmond, uh, which has also has a large African-American population. 
so I wrote it and I put it out and the first people who came to talk to me were uh, two senior African-American employees because in that piece I wrote that, uh, you know, that every African-American saw George Floyd, they saw themselves in George Floyd and there but for the grace of God go I. And I put that in the, in the piece. You could have a PhD, you could be an electrical engineer, you could be a nuclear physicist, you could be an astronaut. But if you're walking down the street, you're still black. Mm. And you're susceptible to the kind of, uh, kind of an abuse and kind of danger. And I think that's the appropriate word. The danger that African-American males suffer, if maybe females as well, I'm not that well acquainted, just by existing. Uh, and I, like I said, I had two senior African-American males come in and tell me that was, that was important to them, for us to understand how vulnerable African-American males are uh, at an everyday existence. So while I could, I could sympathize with them, it just, and I wrote that, it's not something I've ever experienced myself. I just, it just never happened to me. I mean, I can't say I was never a victim of stereotyping or profiling or the like, but not certainly not to the extent that I think that African-American males are, are profiled. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly uh, well stated. And I'm going to assume that there will not be a sequel <laughs> to the presumed alliance. <laughs> no, but I did tell you, I did, I tell you what uh, the, the sequel I wanted to write uh, was the title was Deconstructing the Latino Monolith. And I wanted to look at the Latinos and how we became this quote unquote Hispanic Latino, which really was a result of the 1970s movement to uh, aggregate everybody for political power. Yep. But, you know, the reason that I went from state to state was to show the Puerto Ricans, uh, Cuban Americans, uh, Mexican Americans, and how they reacted to the African American population. Now, mind you, in each one of those, there was this conflict. But the we don't, as Latinos, the the people that called in and told me, "Well, you guys are not a race." We're absolutely right. We're not, and we're as diverse as can possibly be. Uh, I remember being in San Francisco. They had gotten together all these individuals who were, quote, unquote, were power brokers in San Francisco. And we had um, Mexican-Americans. We had Chileans, Colombians, just a variety of Latinos. And the first first thing they started talking about was who speaks the best Spanish. <laughs> and, of course, we know that Mexicans do. <laughs> but also... Um, and they kept saying, well, what's this Dia de los Muertos? Colombians said this. We don't celebrate this in Colombia. And it was this kind of resentment of, the, of everybody. If you're from Latin America, you're Mexican. If you're from South America. I think though here, this is where I go. Why is it so offensive to be confused for Mexican? Like, the disdain, that's, oh, you should write this book. And can I contribute to it? Because let me tell you, <laughs> here's the thing. It's extremely, I think, offensive. If someone were to say, hey, Lisette, um, are you Colombian? Are you this? My response wouldn't be like, oh, no. You know what I mean? But I think call right. Puerto Rican a Mexican or call a Colombian Mexican, immediately it's like, no, I'm not Mexican. And I think within right. our own, you know, Hispanic or Latino community, there's a hierarchy, you know? Oh, yeah. The looks down to the Spanish, that who speaks yes. Spanish. And right. I, 
I, I still though, being the Mexicana that I am, we're the largest group here. So not, no, no, maybe I'm gonna edit that out. But <laughs> truthfully, it's like, excuse me, we there's been a lot of work done by the Latino community and Mexicans in particular to even get to the little right. piece of the pie that we're that's at correct. now. That's correct. I mean, that's correct. I, I, and, and you know, I, I said that in the book. If you break down the numbers, uh, and I remember I used to, I, I think I told you, no, I told Brett this. I would, um, uh, right after the book came out for about four or five years, I would be invited to Chicago to speak at an organization called UNO, uh, which ran charter schools in Chicago. And I remember the second time I went to speak, because uh, I had Latinos from all all of Chicago, different kinds of Latinos. I remember one Puerto Rican fellow came up to me and says, you know, I never realized the difference in numbers. You guys are really, you guys are the big dogs. I said, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't always represent itself. But the other issue, other than the cultural difference, is the political issue. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about the Cubans as being, you know, Latinos. Well, they are, but, you know, they vote Republican, you know. And when the when the Cubans came to to Florida, they who came? It was largely the wealthy, the educated, the ones with money. Yeah, it was it. It was until you got the Maralitos who came in, who were the black Cubans. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's. I think I think that in terms of political speech, the 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 disassembling of the Latino. A model that has to be done for people to understand voting patterns and like, because even with even among Mexican Americans, there's generational differences. When I was in Chicago, I remember one fellow told me I was in the Marines. I met these guys from L.A. and frankly, I had more more in common with an African American friend from Chicago than I had from those Latinos from L.A. Because yeah. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about half the time. Yeah, and and you know, here's here's another one, and I think in this latest election, right? When we talk about, I I just heard a lot and read about how Latinos voted and can you believe Florida? Can you believe Florida helped elect Donald Trump? And I I remember sitting there like, can we talk about Arizona? Why? Arizona was flipped. Why are we not talking about Arizona? Well, who's there? But but suddenly the media only focused on oh, look at how Latinos voted in, in Florida. And that to me showed their ignorance because they didn't take the time right. to fully understand who it was that they were talking about. And they painted us all with one brushstroke. Whereas had they just, dis- and, and, no, no, and, and you know, and Maurice, this is the difference. You go to Georgia, you have African-Americans, what, 99% vote Democratic. It's a youth because they have a common experience. Mm-hmm. We don't have it with Latinos don't have it. I don't have anything in common with the Cubans in, in, in Miami. I have nothing in common with it. Uh, I'm sure that I have very little common with Puerto Ricans in New York City. But yet we're all lumped together as Latinos. And, you know, I, I, like I said that was the book I wanted to write. But it was not it was not something that uh, uh, Harper Collins actually uh, Rayo Press went 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 the uh, went south. So I was never able to follow up on it. But that, that I think, is the book that has to be written. It definitely is, because, again, when we talk about having our needs met, right, because, you know, who is the who are the policymakers trying to appeal to when they talk about the Latino vote? Right. And, and if we don't right. have our in, interests represented, 
you know, it's it's just so discouraging. It's extremely discouraging. Right. And, and, you know, you talk about that generational uh, differences, too. I think if here's here's where Republicans and, and I don't want to make this a bipartisan issue, but this is where Republicans really mess up in in their disdain for Latinos. For the most part, we're largely like Catholic. If they were a little yeah. nicer, you know, we they would find that you, they could probably persuade more Latinos to vote Republican if they just took the time to get to know what are the things that matter to us? What are the issues that we care about? Yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But they don't take the time to understand those nuances and how religion. Sorry, Morris, I know you're trying to jump in, but let me just have this moment. That, <laughs> that if they just took the time, I mean, I, I vote Democrat, that's me. But if they just took the time to understand, they perhaps would get more of the Latino vote that they so, so desperate, like so much fear. They have so much fear of like the, the Latinos becoming the majority. Well, if you were nicer, you could probably get more of us to vote for y'all. But you don't. All right. All right. So let me just jump in here real quick with two things. Right. Because I am I I am a pastor. Right. And so I think I represent, though, this idea that there are black people who have this conservative core because of their faith. You talk about the power of religion and yet politically it has meant very little uh, the, the power of the black church. Which, which, when you think about the civil rights movement, that's where that's where yes. the civil rights movement started, right? Is in black churches, and so um, I think that that's interesting. And perhaps they're looking at that history of like, well, even though black people can be, you know, in this church, they're not voting that way. So maybe that impacts that that thought process with the Latinos as well. The other thing that I would say, however, um, is that because black people. Are that there is this this presumption that they would vote Democrat. I have felt like for years that neither political party actually works to earn that vote mm-hmm. because Republicans feel like it's an assumption, it's a done deal, and Democrats also talk about race every four years. I'll I'll right. think about it. I'll encourage you to 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 just get you to vote. If 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 um, I, I think right, it's about how do we mobilize both within the Latino community and the Black community to actually get like, don't just talk to me. I don't need you to just talk right. to me. I need you to show me. Like I'm from Missouri, right? And, and this is a show me state. You need to show me something because otherwise, we can keep voting ninety five percent, and and there's still a lot of Black men in jail. Mm-hmm. And who, yeah, who? Yeah, by absolutely. the way, Donald Trump made made some some uh, criminal justice reform. Republican yeah. old Donald Trump made some criminal justice reform. You understand what I'm saying? So, <laughs> yeah, um, no. I, I I do think there has to be that action to it, and I, I feel like that's why that's why Donald Trump was able to say, "Hey, there he is. There's my black friend. That black friend showed up because they were like, I'm looking for somebody to do something." And the Democratic Party has talked a good game since the 60s and has not oh, done yeah. much since the 60s. Well, it's the policy issues. I mean, you, you've got, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to say things, another thing to do policy that benefits African-American, the African-American right. community. Though I think I think we may have that with with Biden in the long run. Uh, but anyway, it's um, however long he has. <laughs> 
And that man is old. I keep oh, looking at him, like. Don't edit that out. You know, you notice it. My pleasure. My, no, my pleasure. I was just going to say, if you notice in the evenings, he's not hot. In the morning, she's fine. But yeah. uh, he's like a lot of a lot of us old folks. Uh, in the evening, you start worrying out. Yes. All right. So it's been a, actually a really great conversation. Like, we've really let loose here. We like to get candid and we like to be very honest um, because Maurice and I operate as building principles. We have to be kind of... I don't want to say stuffy, but you know, it's just a different type of conversation sure. that we often have. So it's nice to be able to get on this podcast and talk to people like you that, you know, I personally just want to thank you so much for writing something like the presumed Alliance, because I know you had to put a lot of heat for it. And, okay. Um, okay. you know, it stuck with me. You, you probably never thought that some little homegirl in Waukegan <laughs> picked it up and got sent to collections. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, okay. well, on Black, Brown, and Bilingue, we like to leave our listeners with, with one final thought or comment. And so could you close that out? Like if you could say one thing, you know, is it about the book or, you know, this, this idea of the Black, Brown divide, what is the one thing that you would want? want our listeners to walk away with? My hope is that the black-brown divide ends and that that we focus on policy and that we, we unite in terms of our political leaders and manifest our vote uh, and devote it to individuals who are willing to, to um, draft and pass policy that affects positively both Latinos and African-Americans. Perfect. Awesome. All right, for black, brown, and bilingual, I'm Lisette Jacobson. And I'm Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in.